Good morning. We are reading from Job 1, 1 through 5. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. Hi. Thank you. All right. So as we make our way through the story of the Bible, uh, from Genesis to Revelation this year, our year of the Bible, uh, we find ourselves this week and next in the Old Testament book of Job. So open your Bibles to Job if you're not there yet. If you don't know where it is, just open up in the middle. That's usually Psalms, and just go one book to the left. Uh, this week has been a, a bit of a whirlwind for me as I've been uh, just engaging this story, reading Job, listening to Job, even watching a video about Job, which we'll see in a moment. I woke up the other morning, and I'm not kidding, uh, my first thought was, what about Job? What's happening with Job? <laughs> it's been consuming me, and it's been a while since I've been this uh, invested in a, in a Bible book. And I think the reason is that the story is so profound, the themes are so big. I mean, God and his sovereignty, evil and suffering. And the questions are so timeless. Why do the righteous suffer? What's it for? Who's to blame? Where is God in all of that? Is God a God of justice? Does the world run according to justice? We think about these things, don't we? I've had a couple good friends die in the past few years, and they both loved God and died young. Whether it's uh, that or kids with cancer or whatever the next senseless tragedy of the week is, we live in a world marked by sin and death and disease and dysfunction. But God, he is righteous and powerful and greater than all those things that plague us, isn't he? He is. So why do these things still happen so often? If you've been reading this week, you know that Job is a really challenging book. Uh, to encounter God is to experience something profound. And the posture Job assumes at the end of the story ought to be ours uh, as well, to place our hands over our mouths. In your outline, there's an upside-down triangle. It's a cone of words that will follow. It's eventually going to get us from our, uh, to our text this morning in Job 2. But because it's a new book in our study and such a big story, I wanted to start with a big picture and then whittle our way down to Job 2. So uh, please let me do that over the next 10 minutes or so so we can get immersed in the story of Job. And then we'll look at chapter 2. So uh, you can see your outline, that, that cone. Uh, we'll start big, uh, kind of a wide-angle lens approach. Uh, I'll say a few words about wisdom literature, which is where Job is found in the Bible. 
And then we'll, we'll come in a little bit and consider the whole book of Job, chapters 1 to 42, with some help from a, a, a song, the lyrics. And then we'll get even smaller as we consider the testing of Job in chapters 1 and 2. That's where we'll watch a brief video. And then finally, we will get to Job 2. So wisdom literature, that's where we'll start, kind of a wide-angle uh, lens. The, the Hebrew scriptures are divided into three major categories. There's the Pentateuch, which are the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then there's the prophets, and then the third section is the writings. And included with that third section, the writings, we have wisdom literature. And those are five books also, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And this kind of literature, wisdom literature, is associated with the sages who are uh, mentioned along with the priests and the prophets. They play an important role in Israelite uh, society. Sages are gifted people who recognize what's wise, how the created world works, human affairs. Generally speaking, priests and prophets deal with religious and moral concerns, but sages focus on practical aspects of life. How do you navigate the world? How do you approach certain relationships? How do you deal with the ambiguities of human experience? So how should we live our lives in God's world? Ask a sage or read what they've written. So read the Psalms and Proverbs. We've been doing that with our Bible reading together. That's always a good idea. Read Ecclesiastes. If you do that, find a good commentary to help. Read the Song of Solomon if you're mature enough or married. Sorry, I don't try to exclude big sections of the congregation with any comments, but I'm just teasing. It's a, out of my love for you guys. It's a joke. But please, the Song of Solomon and read Job. So wisdom literature, that's the wide-angle lens. Where does this book of Job fit in the whole Bible? And then we narrow it down a little bit and we consider the single book of Job. Chapters 1 to 42. Now, it's no small thing to summarize all 42 chapters of Job in a few minutes. And I was reminded this last week that sometimes you need an artist to help. And I'm grateful for Michael Card. He's a singer-songwriter who's put the whole book of Job into one song. It's 10 minutes, so we're not going to listen to it this morning. Uh, but we are going to read some of the lyrics. It's called Job Suite, S-U-I-T-E, Job Suite. And I'd encourage you to Google it. The music that he sets it to, it just perfectly captures what's happening in the story. So here's, uh, here's uh, Job 1. He starts at the beginning of the story with these words. Blameless and upright, a fearer of God, a man truly righteous, no pious facade, one about whom God was accustomed to boast, and so one whom Satan desired the most. One day the accuser came breathing out lies. It's your holy handouts his faithfulness buys. In one desperate day, his possessions were lost, his children all killed in one raw holocaust. And yet through it all, through the tears and pain, he worshiped his God, found no reason to blame. So that's chapter one. Chapter two, and these do go quicker, don't worry. That could take a long time. Job two, once more the deceiver denounced and decried, it's skin for skin and hide for hide. Strike down his flesh and he'll surely deny and confess that his praying has all been a lie. Very well take him the Holy One sighed, but you must spare his life. My son shall not die. So Job was afflicted with terrible sores, sat down in the ashes to wait for the Lord. And yet through it all, through the tears and pain, he worshiped his God, found no reason to blame. And then chapters 3 to 37, which is the bulk of the, 
the book. This is Job's cry to the Lord. He says, may the day of my birth be remembered no more. May darkness and shadow come claim it once more. Why did I not perish on that dreadful day and sleep now where kings and counselors lay? What I dreaded most has now come upon me. Why is light given those in misery? I loathe my own life so my tears fall like rain as I find that there is no peace in my pain. Lord, send a comforter now to my door so that this terror will frighten no more. A counselor between us to come hear my oath. Someone who could lay a hand on us both. These friends of mine, they're no comfort to me. So deftly they listen, so blindly they see. Their words and their doctrine, they all sound so true. The problem is, Lord, they're all wrong about you. I know my advocate waits upon high. My witness in heaven sees the tears that I cry. A true intercessor who will condescend to plead with God as a man pleads for his friend. And this next verse, you can just, if you know Job, you know that he's got this internal anguish. He's wrestling with what's happening. He says, if I've been untrue, if I've robbed the poor, if I'm without guilt, what am I suffering for? God would not crush me for some secret sin. And though he slay me, yet I'll trust in him. I know that now my Redeemer's alive. He'll stand on the earth on the day he arrives. And though my body by then is no more, yet in my flesh I know I'll see the Lord. It's amazing. You read all this, and, and so far, we're, God's just sitting there quietly listening to his servant Job. He hasn't said anything. But now he speaks out of the whirlwind. And he says, who is this that darkens my counsel, who speaks empty words without knowledge? Brace yourself up like a man and answer me now if you can. And this isn't in the Bible, but I think Job said, uh-oh. <laughs> and then I, I can't help on this Father's Day to hear dad, God put on his dad voice here to his son. Can you put on glory and splendor? What's the way to the home of the light? Does your voice sound like the thunder? Are you not afraid? Where were you when earth's foundations were laid? Who gave the heart its wisdom, the mind its desire to know? Can you bind the stars, raise your voice to the clouds? Did you make the eagle proud, Job? Will the ox spend the night by your manger? Did you let the wild donkey go free? Can you take Leviathan home as a pet? If you merely touched him, you'd never forget. So who is it that darkens my counsel, who speaks empty words without knowledge? Brace yourself up like a man and answer me now if you can. And then that last chapter, finally seeing, starting to understand, Job says, I am unworthy. How can I reply? There's nothing that you cannot do. You are the storm that calmed my soul. I place my hand over my mouth. Well, that, that gives us a sense of the whole book, the drama of the story of Job. And now to whittle it down a, a little bit more to chapters one and two, to help us better understand and enter into the testing of Job, which is what this, this book is so well known for, uh, we have this, uh, this excellent brief video. O oh Lord, if this were lost instead and all I had was you, I would be rich and have the greatest good. His hands hung limp beside the gray, blood-splattered stone. And then he knelt and said, Oh God, what 
you have dealt me in this murky day is not what I had thought this bloody blot red stone would bring. What have we done? What is our sin? Your sons and daughters, Joe, are dead. Oh God, I cling with feeble fingers to the ledge of your great grace. Job's face was full of sores, and every trace of healthy skin was reddening before her eyes. Do you still cling to God? She asked. There is no hiding sin. Oh, whom have you wronged, once noble Job? Beware the thought that all is vain. In time, God's wisdom will be plain. What we have lost, God will restore. That and Himself forevermore. So Job is restored at the end of the story, but let's not jump there yet. We're still in chapter 2, and we've already made a couple passes through this chapter this morning, but we'll take one more run at it. And before we do, let me mention a few things that normally I would say at the beginning of a message about Job. But Job is set in a place called Uz, a land far away from Israel. All the characters are non-Israelites. There's no historical setting mentioned, and I think the author leaves all that stuff out on purpose so that we don't get distracted by those things and we can just focus on the questions that come from Job's suffering. So in Job 1, 1 to 5, which we heard read, uh, we're invited to enter the story of a man named Job and his family, and they're living the good life. It's a sunny day in us. And the best word I can I think that to fit how we find him here is blessed. Hashtag blessed. If he had an Instagram or Twitter account, it would be hashtag blessed all over it. And we read this and we think, if this isn't the good life, what is, right? He has grown children who live in their own homes and seem to get along with each other. He has lots of land and animals, a great reputation, a promising future. He's the greatest in all the East. He's blessed. That word blessed gets thrown out a lot, but I, I can't think of a better word. For Job, right here. But things don't stay that way. We keep reading uh, the story. The sun disappears behind the clouds, and an atomic bomb of loss and grief lands on Job and his family and just decimates them. What does Job have left after that first test? At the end of chapter one, what does he have left? Just questions, lots of questions. No, yeah, his wife too. He doesn't know what we know. He doesn't know there's something going on in heaven, that there's this dialogue between Satan and the Lord. All he knows is what he's experiencing on earth, his life, how he's living, what, what's happened to his family. These trials of his, these tests, they bring up all sorts of questions for Job about God and suffering and what's the point of being righteous anyway. Starting in chapter 3, Job puts to words what many people uh, think when they're enduring trials, what many of God's people, if we're honest, what we think and say. 
It's like the psalmist, if you're familiar with the psalms, these words will sound familiar. Why is this happening, Lord? Have you ever prayed that? Where are you when I need you, God? Don't you see me? Don't you care about what I'm going through right now? Have you ever felt that way? If you have, you're not alone. We don't always know why we suffer. We may never know. Job didn't find out. But what he learns through pain, which is often the best teacher, is that he can trust God, the all-wise, all-powerful, all-good God, and you can trust him too. Job models for us how to suffer in faith, how to bless God even when we don't understand his plan. So Job 2, we're actually going to get there right now. It's the text in the bulletin, Job chapter 2. And to help us move through this chapter, we have three questions that are under that, that cone of words in the outline, the bottom half of the outline. Three questions. The setting for the first question is heaven. In the opening of chapter 2, we're transported to what one Bible scholar calls God's divine command center. It's the heavenly throne room where God's executive staff, these uh, angelic beings called sons of God, where they report for duty. The Lord is pictured like a king who has all his officers gathered together each day and then sends them off on various missions. Or like the police captain on Hill Street Blues that after the briefing says, be careful out there. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Look in your Bibles at, at Job chapter 2, verse 1. The first word there is again. So the first time something similar happened was in chapter 1, and here it happens again, something similar. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. There's no, no fast track or special lane for Satan. He comes like everyone else to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan said, we're going to and fro, up and down on the earth. Whatever that means, I don't know. But he's been out there doing stuff, looking for someone to harass, someone to accuse, I'm sure. And the Lord says to Satan, and here's our first question from the, the outline, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth. Right? We read in Job 1, there, there's no one greater than Job in the east. And now God says from heaven, there's no one like him on the earth. He's special, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. So uh, dads out there, have you ever bragged about your kids? Anyone? Yep. Highlighted their accomplishments, uh, boasted about their physical or intellectual greatness in the presence of others? Of course you have. And I have two. Well, here the Lord, it seems, is doing a little bragging, right? He says to Satan, hey, have you considered my boy over here, my servant Job? He's everything I told you the first time I mentioned him to you, devil, back in chapter one. And even now, after I let you test him, even after you struck all that he had, killed his children, wrecked his life, he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. There are some really hard things to read in the Bible. That last line is worth some of our time this morning. Although, this is the Lord, 
right? Although you, Satan, incited me, the Lord, against Job to destroy him without reason. And then a question that comes up, can, can Satan incite God to do something? Is this just a bad translation of the Bible? Who's calling the shots? That's a question that comes up when we read the book of Job. One of the more uh, challenging parts of Job has to do with this relationship between the Lord and Satan and who has the power, who's stronger. Satan has a lot of power, doesn't he? No doubt. And if you think too lightly of Satan, get ready for some trouble. But is Satan as powerful as the Lord? Is there this epic battle between good and evil and sometimes good wins and sometimes evil wins and you don't know who's going to win and this, this battle just rages on forever? No. God is sovereign. God is more powerful than Satan. How many of you thought, I'm going to this church for Father's Day and I'm going to hear the preacher say, God is more powerful than Satan? Happy Father's Day. <laughs> it's true. God is, in fact, Satan's creator. Everything that happens, happens because of his decree. God is the winner even when it doesn't look like he is. The Bible's full of this truth, the sovereignty of God. And we could spend a lot of time reading the Old and New Testament to, to come up with proof after proof that God is in control. God has the whole world in his hands, all of history. God is sovereign. He's king. But we don't have to go outside of Job to find proof. Three things. First, both times in chapters 1 and 2 that Satan uh, joins the heavenly briefing, it's the Lord who instigates conversation with him. He doesn't come in there just popping off. The Lord says, hey, Satan, where you been? God's in charge of this meeting. The Lord could have told him to flee, but no, he asks him to give a report, and like a good soldier, Satan reports. Also, second thing, in both tests, chapter 1 and 2, Satan does have access to Job, but he has limits, right? Limits established by God. In the first test, uh, he tells Satan, all that he has is in your hand, only against him, don't stretch out your hand. Only against him. Don't stretch out your hand. The second test we read, behold, he's in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan is not free to do whatever he wants to to Job. He has to have permission. He can only do what God says he can do and no more. And then finally, the last proof that God is sovereign, Job's words confirm clearly throughout this book who is in charge, who has the power. After the first test, Job says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In 2.10, we hear him say, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In other words, everything comes from him. Can we acknowledge that? And all throughout the remainder of the book, we hear Job say that the Lord is the one who has brought this upon him. The Lord is sovereignly overseeing all that happens in Job's life, all that happens in your life and mine, even the testing, even the trials, and friends, even the evil. Martin Luther called Satan God's devil, and I think that's right. He does nothing that the Lord hasn't decreed. He has evil intentions. He works to destroy God's people. He's a liar. He's a thief. He's a bastard because he has no father. He can do a lot, but he's on God's leash. 
God uses Satan's wickedness to accomplish his good purposes. And that is some serious sovereignty, isn't it? But that's exactly what we find in the story of Job. God gives Satan a bit more leash in chapter 2, and and Satan uses it to test Job a second time. Look at verse 4. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and flesh, and he'll curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your hand, only spare his life. Verse 7, so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with, look at Satan's power. He struck him with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. We're not sure if Job's sores were uh, boils like one of the ten plagues of, of Egypt or exactly what they were. We do know that skin disease was often a sign of God's displeasure. In Deuteronomy 28, where curses for violating God's covenant are spelled out, we read, the Lord will strike you on the knees and legs with grievous boils of which you can't be healed. Where? From the sole of your foot to the crown of your head. It's no wonder his friends concluded that he was being punished for some wrong that he did. But before his friends arrive, his wife takes a shot at him. This horrible, painful disease inflicted on Job gives rise to the second question, the one from Job's wife, verse 9. She says to Job, and this has to be really hard when you're already down, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Why don't you just curse God and die? What's she saying? Do, Do you still fear God? Is blessed be the Lord still on your playlist, Job? What's the point? It doesn't pay. Give up your piety, Job. You're a fool. The very thing that God was bragging about in verse 3, Job's integrity is what Job's wife thinks is the problem. What good is this integrity if this is the outcome? Why be this way that you are, Job? Job rebukes her, verse 10. He says, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Should we receive good from God and not evil? In other words, don't all things come from God? Who are we to say to the Lord, what have you done? Some leaders throughout church history have been pretty harsh toward Job's wife. Uh, They've called her, among other things, the handmaid of Satan. Um, If you're looking for something to embroider on your mom's uh, bathrobe (laughs) for Mother's Day next year, just take that one off the table. Handmaid of Satan, that's not going to get you anywhere good. But we understand, don't we? We, I mean, if if you hear, hey, we're going to be talking about the book of Job, and you hear Job, you think, oh, great, patient guy, endured a lot, faithful. Job's wife, oh, nag, beats him while he's down. That's what we think. So this very plasticky kind of understanding of he's all good, she's all bad. We have to remember that she lost all her children too in one day. She's in grief. When she says to Job, you should just curse God and die, she's probably talking about how she feels too. She probably wanted to die. She's not a model of virtue. She does say something foolish, that's true. But I think the point of the contrast between Job and his wife is that Job is exceptional. Job is special. Even after all this, he doesn't sin with his lips. I... People slow down in front of me too fast when I'm driving and I sin with my lips. 
Even after all this, he didn't sin with his lips. As for his wife, her response is the expected one, the the human understandable, we get it one, right? She is most of us, Job's wife. But Job, Job holds fast to his integrity. And the way verse 10 ends is just outstanding in all this. I mean, we're reading this story, this horrible tragedy. In all this, Job didn't sin with his lips. His children are dead. His household is ruined. His future is insecure. His body is one big bloody oozing sore. His wife is the handmaid of Satan. Well, not quite, but she's really unhelpful. (laughs) And in all of that, he didn't sin with his lips. He doesn't speak ill of God. He didn't curse God and die as his wife recommended. This, this is a, a really tough season for Job, isn't it? And I know some of you have had a tough season. And if you haven't, live long enough, you will have one or more tough seasons of life. And what you need during those times and what Job needed, what, what this poor guy could really use some good friends, right? And here they come, verses 11 to 13. (laughs) Though these friends don't directly ask their question in chapter two, we have good reason based on the rest of the book to put the words on their lips now. And their question, our, our third and final question is, what have you done? And I thought the video captured that really well. Once righteous Job, what have you done? These friends, they, uh, they start off well enough. It seems like they, they get the word to each other. They decide to come together and journey to where Job is. They come to show him sympathy, to comfort him. They sit silent with him for seven days and nights. This is no shallow friendship. But when that week-long period is over, when their, their mourning is over, they open their lips to speak. That's when the trouble starts. They get to explaining why things are the way they are for Job. They have answers, and Job just needs to listen to them and do what's right. They are unmoving in their theology, which says, God blesses those who are faithful to him and punishes those who sin. And there are no exceptions. Their words and their doctrine, they all sound so true. The problem is, Lord... They're all wrong about you. That's what Job knows. The story of Job ought to forever cure us from being those kinds of theologians, from being the kind of friends who give confident and easy answers to other people's suffering. Job was a faithful father, a faithful husband, a faithful friend. He was in the right, but in God's providence, he became a suffering father a suffering husband, a suffering friend. And while those around him didn't say or do right by Job, the Lord did. And that's all that really mattered. And Job could still say, blessed be the name of the Lord. There's a great uh, hymn from the 1670s called Whatever My God Ordains is Right. And it's hard to not think that the writer, uh, that double, triple negative, the writer of this, I would imagine, had the story of Job in mind. 
says, whatever my God ordains is right, his holy will abideth. I will be still whatever he does and follow where he guideth. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall, and so to him I leave all. Whatever my God ordains is right, he never will deceive me. He leads me by the proper path. I know he will not leave me. I take content what he has sent. His hand can turn my griefs away, and patiently I wait his day. Whatever my God ordains is right, though now this cup in drinking may bitter seem to my faint heart, I take it all unshrinking. My God is true, each morn anew. Sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart, and pain and sorrow shall depart. Whatever my God ordains is right, here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall, and so to him I leave all. In the story this morning, God asked the question, have you considered my servant Job? But in a far more impressive brag, he says, have you considered my son, Jesus? My son, my beloved son, whom I love and whom I'm well pleased? Job did. You know what? Job could answer, well, yes, I have considered your son, Jesus. Did you know that? In Job 19, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and in my flesh I shall see God. Is that your hope this morning? Do you have that same hope? Do you know that Jesus, the Redeemer, lives? That he's died and risen from the grave, victorious, conquering sin and death for you? Do you know that? Do you have that confidence? Is God the Father your Father through faith in the Son, His Son? If so, praise the Lord. Leave here singing, blessed be the name of the Lord. Whatever may come, blessed be the name of the Lord. If not, then come to Him today. This could be the best Father's Day of your life. By the power of the Holy Spirit, today, Father's Day 2019, could be the day that you hear and respond to these words, come to the Father through Jesus the Son. Give God the glory. Great things he has done. Let's pray together. God, your ways are mysterious. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We don't understand so much of life. We don't understand why we suffer, when we suffer. But if we've learned anything from Job this morning, it's who to direct our eyes to in the midst of suffering and loss. And that's you, God, our ever-faithful God. You are our God, though dark our road. You hold us that we shall not fall, and so to you we can give all. We can leave everything in your hands. Job knew that his Redeemer lived. May we, each of us, God, this morning, know that Jesus, the Redeemer, lives, and that he died and rose again for us. 
We ask this in the name of Jesus, Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, let's turn to Jesus together in faith, in hope.